Welcome back everyone to Poem Crit 101. As always, I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist. And today I wanna to talk about one of my absolute favorite topics. If you guys have worked with me in the hospital, you'll know exactly what it is I'm referring to. And if you haven't, you'll come to know it very well. Uh, that topic is pulmonary hypertension or PH as I like to call it. What I love so much about pulmonary hypertension is that it's that perfect example of that intersection between science and art. It's algorithmic until it's not. And the reason why I think it's so important that we talk about it is because many of our patients in the ICU can end up with elevated PA pressures or essentially pulmonary hypertension, and this can impact how we take care of these patients. So if we define pulmonary hypertension, just like what the name says, it's an elevated blood pressure in the pulmonary circulation, specifically the pulmonary artery. And when we talk about diagnosing someone with pH, they need to have an RVSP of at least 35 on an echo, followed by a mean PA pressure of at least 20 on a right heart cath. Those are some key values that you guys will need to know. Now, one thing to know about pulmonary hypertension is that if you do go into pulmonary or ICU as your field of choice, you'll often get consults for, you know, an elevated PA pressure. What do we do with that? So I'm going to pose that question. If you were the specialist who was called to the bedside because patient X echo said that, you know, they may have pulmonary hypertension, what's the first thing you're going to do? Well, first of all, you don't want to panic. A lot of times this may mean nothing. And sometimes there is something more to it. And that's where the first step is going to be to figure out the etiology, and that'll help guide management. So the easiest way to do this is to follow the WHO classification. When we talk about the WHO classification for etiology of pH, we're talking about five different groups. Group one is going to be things like drugs, for example, cocaine, meth, like amphetamines, fenfen, for those of you from the 80s who remember that as being a popular weight loss drug, that's implicated in pH, SSRIs, and even St. John's wort. Portopulmonary disease also comes under this group, as does HIV and idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, which is known as pulmonary artery hypertension. And this is a key point. Saying that someone has pH does not mean that they have PAH. PAH, or pulmonary artery hypertension, is part of the group one subtype of pH. Now we move on to group two. That's going to be your left heart disease. So things like CHF or any valvular dysfunction, aortic stenosis, mitral regurg, what have you, that could be causing uh, difficulties uh, with the ejection fraction. Group three is going to be hypoxia. And this is key. It's not just going to be your COPD patients, but it's also going to be your patients who've got ILD, interstitial lung disease, or even obstructive sleep apnea. Now remember, if someone has pretty bad pH, you can never attribute it to OSA alone. It's usually OSA plus another concomitant cause. Group four is going to be CTEF or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And we're going to delve into that a little bit later. And group five is kind of, like, kind of what I call like the throwaway bag or the potpourri of all the other causes. Some popular ones to think about would be ESRD, sarcoid, and even myeloproliferative diseases. So you have all these etiologies. How does this help us guide management? This is where the algorithm comes in. You're looking for the underlying cause of pH. So you want to order that diagnostic imaging in those labs. It'll help rule out each cause one by one. 
remembering that PAH is going to be that diagnosis of exclusion. For example, you want to check for HIV, look for liver disease, get a good history to see could they have taken any of those drugs that could cause group 1 PH. You want to get autoimmune uh, labs as well, because remember, connective tissue disease also comes under group 1. You want to get that echo that you got to begin with to see if there's any valvular dysfunction or any CHF. You want to get a CT chest, in particular a high-res CT, to look for evidence of any ILD. Sleep study will be helpful here as well, including and as well PFTs. For group 5 disease, you're going to want to look at that CT chest again to see if they've got sarcoid, and you can get a CBC to look at for myeloproliferative disease. And for group 4, which we're going to get into more in later, that chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, you're not going to get a CTHS to look for a PE, as most people think. The gold standard to diagnose CTEF is by getting a VQ scan. And I'll repeat that once more because it's a classic board question. The gold standard to diagnose CTEF is a VQ scan. So say you've gotten all this testing for patient X and everything has come back negative, but they still have that elevated PA pressure on their echo. Well, it's possible that they could still have a case of PAH, but you have to confirm that with a right heart cath. So what's a right heart cath going to tell us? Right heart caths can be useful for so many different reasons, but especially so in pH. Plus, as you can imagine, they're fun to do. When you, do, when you or the cardiologist does the right heart cath, the two main values that you want to look out for are going to be your wedge pressure and the PVR, or the pulmonary vascular resistance. Now remember, these values aren't going to tell you what group the pH is in, but it will tell you if the disease is pre-capillary or post-capillary. And how does that work? Pre-capillary disease is consistent with groups 1, 3, 4, and 5, and post-capillary disease is consistent with groups 2 and 5. So if you've ruled out all your other causes of pH and you're trying to see, you know, does my patient have PAH? You do that right heart cath, and if you find there's, for example, pre-capillary disease, well, you ruled out groups 3, 4, and 5, so then, okay, you've got a group 1 patient, it's likely a diagnosis of PAH. Now, I told you what groups are consistent with pre-capillary and post-capillary disease, but I didn't really tell you what values on the right heart cath that you should expect to see that would go with each uh, type. So, for pre-capillary disease, you're going to have a wedge pressure less than 15, and a PVR greater than three in Woods units. For post-capillary disease, you'll have a wedge pressure above 15 and a PVR less than three Woods units. Let me say that one more time. For pre-capillary disease, you'll have a wedge pressure less than 15 and a PVR greater than three in Woods units. For post-capillary disease, you're going to have an elevated wedge pressure above 15 and a PVR less than three Woods units. And this makes sense because remember, post-capillary disease is consistent with group 2 disease, which is left heart disease, and we would expect to see an elevated wedge pressure in left heart disease. So you've done the right heart cath, you found that there's pre-capillary disease, you've ruled out all the other causes, and you confirm PAH. What do you do next? Now, this is the hard part. This is where treatment comes into play, and this is where it kind of becomes less of a science and more of an art. The first thing you're going to do before you actually start administering any medications is you're going to do a vasoreactivity test. And this is usually done at the time of the right heart cath. 
The reason why we do this vasoreactivity test is to see if these PAH patients are going to be responsive to calcium channel blockers. If they're not responsive to calcium channel blockers, then the next step is going to be to look at your patient's functional class, similar to the NIHA class that we use for our CHF patients, and then that's going to help determine your treatment regimen. Types of medicines that we use for PAH include your endothelin receptor antagonists, your phosphodiesterase inhibitors, your cyclic guanylase stimulators, and your prostacyclins. IV prostacyclin formulations like epoprostenol, those are usually for your severely ill PAH patients, and those patients need to be admitted to a specialized ICU. Now, one thing to note, something that's relatively recent, a randomized controlled trial was done actually last year, 2021, which showed that the use of inhaled triprostanil actually improved exercise capacity and the six-minute walk time for patients who had group 3 PH due to interstitial lung disease. So remember, treatment strategies for PH are constantly evolving. There's always research being done and new strategies that are um, being uh, published. Now, let's talk about group four or CTEF. CTEF is unique because the definitive treatment is actually, in fact, a procedure called a pulmonary endarterectomy, where that clot gets removed. But if the patient can't tolerate the procedure or the location of the clot is not conducive to having the procedure done, then you can put these patients on a medication called Riosiguat, which is a cyclic guanylase stimulator and anticoagulation, usually warfarin. These medications are only help with a symptomatic benefit, though. They have no mortality benefit. And it's interesting, we actually had a patient with diagnosed CTEF in our ICU earlier this year. It was a young man uh, who had previously been diagnosed with CTEF, and he had been on both warfarin and riosiguat, but unfortunately was not very compliant. He ended up being admitted to our ICU with decompensated uh, right heart failure. He required intubation at the time, and unfortunately, he arrested post-intubation and passed. And this point right here is why it's so, so important to always be on the lookout for pH and to know how to manage it. Not only can it result in right heart failure, which in and of itself is very difficult to treat and has a high mortality, but the very process of intubating these patients is dangerous because this can result in hemodynamic collapse in these patients. Let me take a moment to talk about how pH can lead to right side heart failure. So remember, in these patients who've got pH, you have a progressive pulmonary vascular remodeling. And because of this remodeling, you get an increased afterload, and this keeps increasing. The right ventricle can't adapt to this increased afterload, and that's why you get the symptoms of exertional dyspnea and syncope. This then can result in a decompensated right-sided failure due to either the disease itself progressing or some specific insult like a PE, infection, volume overload, acidosis, or even an arrhythmia. Now, the other thing to remember about these patients is that intubation can cause hemodynamic collapse. So what happens is that when you intubate these patients, and you, if you intubate them supine, you can actually increase that RV preload and distension and decrease the RV output. And by doing so, you worsen that systemic hypotension. So it's actually beneficial to intubate these patients either at an incline or with a ramp. The other really important thing to remember is that using anesthetic agents for induction in this situation can result, into a, can result in a systemic vasodilation, which then can decrease that coronary artery perfusion. 
that can result in an RV ischemia, which can then cause hemodynamic collapse. So your best case scenario is going to be to use conscious sedation when intubating these patients, or honestly, not even using any sedation at all. Interestingly so, atelectasis can actually increase the pulmonary vascular resistance in RV afterload, and by keeping the patient upright just prior to intubating and even doing some short-term NIV trials, you may even be able to limit these effects. So what do we do if anesthetic agents aren't our best choice? What can we use? Say the patient's still awake and fighting, uh, fighting you while you're trying to bag mask valve the patient. What, what can you use? I mean, you got to give them something, right? So the best agent, safest induction, induction agent is going to be Atomidate. This is the one that's the most hemodynamically neutral. One thing to note, though, about Atomidate is that it does suppress adrenal cortisol production, so you may have a delayed hypotensive effect, but for induction, it's generally safe. Another option is ketamine. This helps minimize that hypotension, and it actually improves coronary artery and end organ perfusion. They've done studies that have shown that ketamine can actually be used safely in combination with rocuronium in stable pre-op pH patients. What you absolutely want to avoid is propofol alone or propofol in combination with an opioid like fentanyl or benzos, because then you'll get negative effects on sympathetic tone, cardiac contractility, preload, and afterload. Honestly, guys, that was pH in a nutshell. The bottom line is the takeaway that I want you guys to uh, leave from here with is always be on the lookout for pH. Do a workup if you think it's clinically relevant. And if you're intubating any of these people, try your hardest to stick with a hemodynamically neutral agent such as Atomidate and try not to use pro fentanyl or Versed. It honestly, pH is such an underrated topic and it has some very real world implications. Everyone should be aware of this disease process. I want to thank everyone for listening today. And remember to join me next time for some more concept reviews and wild and crazy cases.